Good morning, church. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 111. Because of City Serve, we're departing from our Minor Prophets series. We'll return next week with Habakkuk. But today for City Serve, Psalm 111, page 509 in the Bibles provided for you in the pew. Why this psalm? If you were to go into either the old Cavendish Laboratory at Cambridge in England or the new one, you would find inscribed over the door, over the main entry to either laboratory, these words, the words from Psalm 111, verse 2. Great are the works of the Lord studied by all who delight in them. James Clerk Maxwell, father of electromagnetic research, became so famous, so successful, the university agreed to build him a new laboratory, the Cavendish Laboratory, 1874. And so even though it wasn't entirely popular with all that in that uh, era, he said, I want inscribed above those great wooden doors, Psalm 111, verse 2, from Latin, great are the works of the Lord to be studied, to be pondered by all who delight in them. 1973, they rebuilt that laboratory, built a new laboratory, still called Cavendish. This time, a PhD student, he hadn't even earned his degree yet, but he bravely said to his professor, I think that over the entry to this new laboratory, there should also be Psalm 111, verse 2, this time in English, the professor said, that'll never happen in this day and age. He took it to the committee, felt an obligation to his student, and miracle of miracles, they approved it. Everyone who goes to, to either of those laboratories, either, either one, walks under these words. The one who split the atom, the one who discovered the structure of DNA, 23 Nobel Prize winners have entered into those laboratories walking beneath these words, great are the works of the Lord to be studied by all who delight in them. I've chosen this chapter, surely, for the same reason that those scientists chose to have one verse inscribed above the entry. Because it seems to me these, this passage contains the three pillars of educational mission, the three motivations for why we declare that Jesus Christ is Lord of creation and redemption in every educational endeavor that is before us. I want you to look the anticipation of being met with these three pillars, these three stars in the constellation of God's covenantal love. Psalm 111, verse 1. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright in the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. 
He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Open our eyes, O Lord, that we might behold beautiful, encouraging, empowering, converting things from this portion of your word. We pray in Jesus' name and for his sake, and God's people said together, Amen. It was about 20 years ago, I took a new pastorate in an urban setting in Augusta, Georgia. We were trying to figure out how to reach, reach out to our neighborhood, problems that we were not familiar with. We didn't know how to engage it. There were all kinds of brokenness all around us, poverty, violence, lack of education, lack of resources. And my good friend Sandy Wilson came, preached our missions conference as he had done for me in the past. And he was sharing with us what was happening here in Memphis. They were engaged in something called the Shalom Project coming out of Jeremiah. And the Jeremiah relates from the Lord that those people who were deported into captivity, the people of Judah, they were to do several things. They were to marry, they were to plant gardens, they were to pray for the peace of the city. Not just Jerusalem, but the city in which they were captives, the city that hated them, a city that was holding them captive. You pray for God's peace to come to that place. Shalom is the Hebrew word, a word that, that communicates a wholeness, healing flourishing, thriving. Pray for that to come to this city. And so they were pursuing that in the under-resourced areas of this city, studying those, those areas, and then asking from God's word, what does it look like when shalom shows up? When peace comes to a community that is broken, what does it look like? Well, the smart people to develop that Report had about nine things. We couldn't remember all of them, so we distilled them into five. They were things like this, spiritual vitality, family health, uh, quality of life essentials, health care, education, public safety sort of thing, and civic development, arts, entertainment, so forth. So we said, there's our, there's our, our checklist. There's, there's what we are supposed to pursue in bringing shalom to this city. We want peace, healing, thriving to come. That's what God wants for those who bear his image. 
as, as we set out on our works and people got interested, they wanted to join us. People who weren't even Christians. One woman moved to our city from Atlanta. She was a new lawyer, young African-American woman. Her mother had grown up in poverty in Atlanta. And she said, I want to join your work. She wasn't a Christian. She probably thought she was. She didn't have a personal faith with Christ. But she said, I believe what's going on, what you're doing for these children in this city. I want to help however I can. And she said, this is what inspires me. She said, my mother growing up in inner city Atlanta said that being a child in poverty in an under-resourced area, she said it was like living under a box. And she said when, when someone paid her attention in school and she learned to read, she learned uh, how to, uh, about the rest of the world and education, she said it was like they cut a hole in her box. And that hole got bigger and bigger the more she discovered about God's world. I said, well, we're not going to teach you. We're not going to use your gifts to cut a hole in a box. We're going to teach you. Uh, we're We're going to do what we do. Whether or not you have a personal relationship with Christ, we're, we explain what we do, we do because Jesus loves us and Jesus loves these kids we're working with. And we're teaching them not just to cut a hole in their box, we want to teach them to destroy the box because we want them also to have a personal relationship with Christ and live with him forever. In City Serve, we... We focus, we rotate through these emphases of shalom. This year, it's education. Education is not just a, a, a backdoor way to get the gospel into a school. Education is not just something to advance God's kingdom. But education in the hands of a Christian should be the declaration that Jesus Christ, the one we've been proclaiming today, crowning with many crowns, that Jesus Christ is the Lord of creation and redemption. He's the Lord of all reality, and he wants you to know not only how to be saved, but that this is your Father's world and how to live in it. What is it that motivates us to do that? Not because we're driven by guilt. Not because we're driven by shame. But because we know Christ the Lord who has redeemed us and reconciled us to the Heavenly Father who is just and merciful and faithful. Those are the words that are found in this passage as they're found all over the pages of Scripture. Three stars in the constellation of God's covenant love. Justice, mercy, faithfulness. What do they have to do with our educational mission? whatever part you play in it. Well, first of all, justice. We find justice as the foundation for our educational mission in verses 1 to 4 and verse 7. And first we define the word. What is justice? We have to keep defining that word because it's been hijacked by so many, but it's a word throughout Scripture, variously translated upright, righteousness, the right ways of God, judgments of God, justice. What does it mean? We can boil it down to this. God's requirement for a relationship with himself or God's requirements for, his, for our relationships with each other. That's justice. God's 
will. This is the way I want you to relate to me. And this is the way I want you to relate to each other. We had to be justified in order to be reconciled to God because we had broken his law. Jesus Christ had to put himself in the place of our judgment. Our sin goes on him by faith. And when it does, we received his righteousness in in place of it. And that's called justification because the requirements for a right relationship with him have been made right. But then there is justice with our relationships with each other. What does God require? Sometimes we call it rights. That word gets misunderstood. But what are the rights of a human being made in the image of God? Well, we hear life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. We know food, shelter, clothing, and so forth. But the Bible tells us that there are other things, too, that God says, these are rights I give to my image bearers. These are things I want them to have. These are things that they don't have them. I want you to make sure they do. And here is one of them. Verse 4. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. He's caused his wondrous works to be remembered. God has said, I desire, I want my people, human beings made in my image. I demand that they know that I'm the creator and I am the redeemer. See, that's reinforced in verses five and six. He remembers his, or verse seven, the works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. There's a description of two kinds of revelation, two ways God makes himself known. In theology, we talk about general revelation and special revelation. Or we could say the book of creation and the book of redemption. The book of creation is this, it's described in Psalm 19, the heavens are telling the glory of God. Or Romans 1, 18 to 20, since the beginning of the world, these things about God have been clearly known through the things he has made. His eternal power and his glory. So God speaks through the creation in a general way. He speaks in such a way that no one was without excuse from knowing that there is a God who has designed all of this. It didn't happen by chance. There is a designer behind all of this. And this is a, there is a God who is just behind all of this general revelation in creation. It's not sufficient on its own. God doesn't write John three sixteen in the stars. He gives us the Bible to explain the rest of the story. The rest of the story tells us that we were created, that we are fallen, and that we are redeemed in Jesus Christ. He has been raised from the dead. He's coming again. That's his special revelation. His general revelation, verse 7, the works of his hands. His special revelation, his precepts are just and trustworthy. What does that have to do with our educational mission? It means that we have the joyous, privileged responsibility of sharing with anyone with whom, to whom we have access the good news that Christ is Lord. 
to point to this world, to point to math and language arts and, and history and social studies and, and, uh, and health sciences. We, we point to all of these things and say, you know how this is all possible? You know why this works? You know why this is so beautiful? You know why there are these wonders under this microscope? Because Jesus Christ is Lord in him all things hold, hold together. That's the book of creation. And you know what else? You can have a relationship with him. Your sin's forgiven. An eternal life that begins right now. That's our privilege. Now it takes courage. It takes courage to teach those who have been denied the gospel. You know, the Bible says, we, because, because God has caused his works to be remembered, we're supposed to, to imitate that. We have a divine obligation to make sure that everyone we have contract with understands that Christ is Lord of creation and redemption. You know that in our personal evangelism. And you know that can be dangerous. You know that, that there are forces that oppose you in, in sharing the gospel. You know that we support worldwide missionaries who are put in prison and who, who are persecuted for sharing the gospel. But it takes courage. We've got, to go, we've got to lean into that fear. We've got to share the gospel anyway. But do you know it also takes courage to declare that he is Lord of all creation, of every subject, Because even though it is not legislated against in our community now, there are forces of evil denying our little ones and underprivileged in this city from getting an education that will allow them to escape the box. Sometimes there has been legislation to dark stain on our country. I read uh, this week about two courageous little girls, Susan, uh, Sarah and Angelina Grimke. These are the days of slavery and Sarah and Angelina Grimke's father was a judge on the state Supreme Court of South Carolina. It had recently been made illegal to teach slaves any longer. Christians had begun to teach slaves. Some thought that it would be useful. Some tried to evangelize. But then they got afraid of that because you don't want them becoming equal. You could use that knowledge against us. They could read in the Bible. They're made in the image of God. Slavery would wither from the inside out, so they made it illegal. For African Americans to learn. Anybody who tries to teach them is going to go to prison. Sarah and Angelina's father, Judge Grimke, was his role to put people in jail like that. But Sarah and Angelina had a slave girl friend. They said they would go into their room at night. They would shut the door. They'd turn out the light. They'd put a put a block over the keyhole so no one could see what they're doing. And they said, with spelling books in our hands, we defied the laws of South Carolina and taught our friend how to read. 
It's not legislated against any longer, but do you know that there are evil forces in this city and in this country denying the underprivileged, the poor, the people. They do not want, the evil forces do not want to understand they're made in the image of God because the devil and his minions hate that image. There are evil forces opposing it, keeping them in their boxes, in their slavery, virtual slavery. It takes our courage to speak out against it. It takes our courage to go into those places and to teach, to tutor, to love, to read. It takes our courage to stand up against those laws that maybe not intentionally but unintentionally keep them in their place. Not because guilt, well, there's plenty of responsibility, but because Jesus Christ at the right hand of the Father has given us infinite resources and because he has entered into our slavery and set us free. And we have this good news That Jesus Christ is Lord of creation and Lord of redemption. It is by justice that we relate the knowledge of God in his world is good news. And it is by mercy that we enter into this educational mission too. What is mercy? From from the Bible, we know that mercy is undeserved. It's love that is given before somebody is worthy of it. Before somebody has earned it, it's undeserved. It's usually surprising. This undeserved person is receiving this kind of love. That's surprising. And it's usually sacrificial. It costs something. Now, that's the kind of mercy we've received from God in Christ. Where is it in this text? Well, you can easily recognize it by now after we've studied the minor prophets for so long. You see it in the, at the end of verse 4. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He goes on to give some examples of how he is. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant. He's shown his people their, his power. He's given them an inheritance. But it's just that phrase at the end of verse 4, the Lord is gracious and merciful that would send the faithful Jew back to Exodus 34, 6 and 7. We've seen it again and again, haven't we? Frequent mention of that self-revelation of God in Exodus 34, 6 and 7, when Moses said, I've got to know who you are at your heart, Lord. And he said, here I am. Here's my glory, my glory, the thing that makes me tick, the most fundamental attribute I have that out of which all the attributes come is my mercy. I'm the Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression and sin. And so in the Bible, then the shorthand for that reference is just a couple of words put together like this. He, the Lord is gracious and merciful. The Lord constantly is surprising his unworthy people with undeserved love. 
Even in that context, they were the ones who were committing idolatry and debauchery down in the, in the valley, and God forgave them. And God continued to forgive and continued to endure with them, just as he does with us. It's surprising. It is undeserved, his mercy, and it's costly to him. It cost him his son. What does it have to do with our educational mission? It means that mercy must be our motivation. We, we move toward those who need to hear. The Lord is over creation and over redemption. We move toward, we move toward kids before they're grateful, before their parents are involved. We teach them math and science and that Jesus loves them even when they're ungrateful for it, when they're rebellious, when they're naughty. When it's high school students or college students, they're just using the education we give them for their own selfish purposes, but we move toward them regardless because of mercy. I was taught this in an embarrassing way reminded of this in an embarrassing way <clears throat> a number of years ago we were in my other pastorate we were working in the city and we were working with two different schools one was a school that that uh, that we had uh, that uh, we had founded our people had founded it was a private school it was a preparatory school in the poorest part of town and uh, it had been a public school for over a hundred years and even though it was started by an evangelical man, they had moved out of that building because they didn't want to fix it up any longer. And the school system built, a, built them a brand new uh, school on the, another part, in another part of town. So we stood up this school, raising the money to renovate the building, raising the money to provide tuition for the kids, and, uh, and, and raising the money for their, their violins and their, uh, their, all the other resources for the school. And then, then we had adopted this public school and uh, we were, they, they, we said, you tell us what you need. And, and they shared with us their, they needed computer paper and they needed computers and they needed pencils and they, and the, and the teachers needed uh, sticky notes and, and, uh, and, and then our, 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 our uh, playground is so covered up. We can't play out there. We need somebody to clear it off for us. So I was out there with a group of our, our people one day and it was hot and and, and we were clearing off this land and, and I had just paid my city taxes. And I had a bad attitude. I thought to myself, here I paid my taxes, 75% of them uh, had gone to city school and we're having to provide paper and, we're, and here I am out clearing this land and we had to provide for this other school we're providing for both schools and yet all of my taxes are going to this. I had a bad attitude. So the next day I went to this, the school system lawyer who was a member of our church and I complained about it. I want to know why my tax dollars are not going to, why am I out there cleaning up this property and providing for all these things? And, and they don't deserve it. He said, well, you know, my pastor has taught us That we're supposed to imitate God's prodigal love, his mercy, 
I think helping the public school with resources they should have and standing up a private school for the poor in the same, in another part of town, I think funding both of them, sacrificing of both of them, that's just what Christians do. Just like my pastor says Jesus has done for us. I said, well, I want to talk to your pastor. I have a few things to bring up with him. I was humbled. Then he said, but here's the rest. You are a taxpayer. You have a platform. You have access to the school superintendent. She respects you. You go and talk to her about it. And I did. It's not right. I said, we're providing those. We're happy to spend the money. But why is it that this is having to happen? Why are we having to supply these needs for these kids? She didn't know about it. She said, because we're wasting all the money on the sixth floor of the, academic, the educational building. It's too much overhead in our, in our uh, administration, she said. Thank you for bringing it to my attention. That's also mercy. Speaking up. Using the platform God has given us, the influence we've given us to advocate for those who are being denied the resources they're due. Third attribute of God that we imitate is faithfulness. Faithfulness. Faithfulness is his loyalty. It is loyalty. Covenant loyalty. Which just means God says, I'm your God, you'll be my people. I'm not going to fail on that promise, and I want you to keep the same promise. And so we're supposed to say, you are our God, and we are your people. You tell us what to do, and we'll do it. That's what, we're, that's what faithfulness is. Now, where do you find that in the text here? It's in verses 8 to 10. They're established forever to be Performed with faithfulness and uprightness. What is the antecedent of they? Verse 7. The works of his hands and his precepts. Remember, we've already learned what that is. Just general revelation, the book of creation, the works of his hands, and his special revelation, precepts. Both of them, he says, the book of creation, the book of the laws by which creation generally operates. They're established forever. And his word, Scripture, is established forever. What does that look like practically? It means that we teach where we have opportunity. That when you live according to to the way God made the world, life generally goes better. Not perfect, it's a broken world. But when you live according to the principles by which God has set up the creation, things go better. We teach people how to eat and how to exercise, how to engage in public health, hygiene, We teach people how to do math. We we, we teach people uh, how to take care of their bodies. Preserve themselves for their spouses. Not just because God's word requires it, but it works better 
in creation too. One of the commentators I've used in the Minor Prophets said, creation always sides with the Creator. Don't try to live against creation's laws that are established by His Creator so that life will go well with us. That's part of our teaching responsibility. We teach them that when you bring trauma and discord and violence into a home, it wounds their brains. Teach that. And then we teach the precepts of his laws. We teach what scripture says, where we have opportunity. This is why this makes sense. This is why God has revealed this knowledge. This is how you can have a relationship with him. And when you live in relationship with him, life will go better and it will last for eternity. And not only will we teach people how to live, we will create wise people. Verse 10, the fear of the Lord is a beginning of wisdom. Not a a servile, cowering fear, but as Bible scholars tell us, fear of the Lord is this comprehensive awareness that Jesus Christ is Lord of everything. Teaching people how to ask first, what does the Lord want me to do? Let me live that way. People become wise. They practice good understanding. His praise endures forever. What does that look like in education? It means it, you know, here's, here's, some, here's some very practical things. It, mean, it means in, in one of our ministries, it, it has meant that we we teach the practical value of a trash can. Well, the problems some of the adults were having is that we just can't keep these animals away from our trash. It's because you need to put it in a trash can. And here's the schedule. And then we teach how to, how to manage your finances. Things that are usually taught, maybe generationally, but very basic Things. This is creation works better when you participate with it. But you know the most effective thing strategically we can do to reverse the prime the majority of ills in our city is teaching a kid to read before third grade. If a kid doesn't learn to read before third grade, do you know that they go ahead and prepare? A prison bed for that kid when he becomes an adult or she becomes. 89% chance the child will never graduate. High chance they'll go into crime, unwed pregnancies. Drug addiction, abuse. You teach a kid to read on grade level by grade three, 89% chance that they will graduate. How much does that take? How much energy does that take, you think? Well, one ministry we partner with and all of these ministries to some degree or another do mentoring and teaching, but a rise to read, for instance, one hour a week, September to April, one hour a week teaching sight words, cat, 
hat, so forth. One hour a week, it's a 478% improvement between those who go through a rise to read and those who don't, those who are not reading at grade level and do. You realize one White House study showed that uh, among those who live in poverty, kids who live in poverty, and 40% of those, 40% of our population in Memphis, is, uh, of our kids, is below the poverty level. Those kids, in their young years, let's say before five years old, hear 30 million fewer words than our kids. On average, one book or less in every home. 30 million fewer words. Words like, I love you. I believe in you. You're special. They don't hear them. So you say, what can I do? Can you speak? Can you read? And it's pretty safe, an elementary school. It may be any number of things you're already involved in. That's wonderful. Go for it. But if you, you say, I don't know at all what to do. What is my first step? Here's an easy one. Sign up to teach some sight words one hour a week. Tell kids you love them. And you can tell them that Jesus has saved you. That's why you're there. You make a huge difference. Or you can participate in one of the after-school ministries, like we have MAM and Red Zone and Streets and Boys and Girls Clubs. Just one school, Craigmont High, where, where uh, Boys and Girls Club uh, exists, with, that uh, reported that they had, a, they had a 73% graduation rate, but every kid in Boys and Girls Club has 100% graduation rate. Those who are in those, that's club go on for CTE. They go on for college education, hundred percent. Dr. Duran, the principal said that uh, violence has gone down. Not one kid is in the judicial system. Skirmishes or they show up for their tutoring. All the other metrics rise when there's somebody incarnating the love of God after school. With words, practical application of love. God is just. He's merciful. He's faithful. The least we can do is imitate that same love. A few years ago, one of my students at Memphis City Seminary. We just, by the way, had our first graduation yesterday. One of my students was working in a, in a ministry that works with kids after school, and they have a pretty tight curriculum. She's not supposed to get outside of it, daily plan. And, and uh, as I, was, I was teaching in this, this course called Apologetics, which is basically how to defend your faith and how to commend it in evangelism. And I, I teach the, this, uh, this old approach, which is instead of asking, uh, you, you know, permission 
to talk about the Lord is to assume that this person already believes whether they deny it or not because of Romans 1. So you start with the foundation. This person has been, God has impressed his laws on his heart. This person knows from the creation there is a God regardless of how much they deny it. So with confidence, we engage them in an evangelistic story. And we, with confidence, we say this is what the Bible says. So she really took that seriously. She went to her after-school program. She had a little basketball team, boys and girls. And she said there was a violent act that happened in that, uh, that, that neighborhood. And the, and the kids were terrified. They were t- insecure. and They didn't have an adult to talk to. And, and so she said, I had to depart from our curriculum. Whether I lost my job or not, I had to depart from our curriculum. And I said, let's gather around in a little circle here. Get real close. I'm going to read you a story. She started reading in Genesis 1, Genesis 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He caused the sea to teem with creatures. One little boy said, you mean God made whales? I've always wondered where whales came from. And that says God made whales. Yes, he made whales, everything else in the sea. And she went on to Genesis chapter 3, and she said, this is where things went wrong. We rebelled against God, and everything was broken. But God didn't leave us there. He sent his son. If you trust in him, he'll take away your sins, and he'll join you to himself, and he will be with you forever. At the end of it, a little boy said, you mean God made me? Yes, he made you. You mean he made me different from the animals? I thought I was just another animal. He made me? And he made me like him? In his image? And then he gave his son for me. I never heard that before. There was no duty. There was no burdensome obligation for her to declare Christ is the Lord of creation and redemption. It just means she needed courage. Step out of her comfort zone. Go to where people were in need. And take the risk of sharing good news that covers the whole cosmos. You and I have it too. As Don has reminded us, it's for all. And all of us who know Christ have the privilege of sharing it. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would help us not to forget the word that we have heard and read. We'd put it into practice. First, maybe kneeling to you and receiving you as our Lord and Savior. But then finding some practical way before this day, before this weekend ends, some practical way 
to give away the good gifts you have shared with us. In Jesus' name, amen.